It is Friday, and we are working for Crusoe. Sam Park, John Ramey with you on Friday, February 2nd, 2024. Sam is in Los Angeles. I am in Reno, Nevada. The United States is poised to strike at Iranian targets after an unmanned drone kills three U.S. military personnel at a base in Jordan. The U.S. economy produces another strong jobs report for the month of January, and that strong jobs report means the Fed, the U.S. Central Bank, may see an interest rate cut on the horizon, but they're not in a hurry. And a drought in Panama is impacting the Panama Canal. Sam, let's start with Iran. The United States has ordered a series of reprisal strikes to be launched against Iranian-backed militia, according to the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. He made that statement yesterday, Thursday, all drones in the region attacking the United States were of an Iranian origin, according to Austin. This, of course, on the heels of the deadly drone strike this past Sunday that killed three U.S. military personnel at a base in Jordan. Austin says that there's a multi-tier response on the table. And Sam, they're really trying to thread the needle. The United States military needs to disincentivize Iran and Iran-backed militia groups from these constant attacks, but they're trying not to start a wider war in the region. Yes, and they don't appear to be in a big hurry about it either, which I think is very interesting. And frankly, uh, I'm happy that they're not, because as soon as uh, the attack occurred on the Tower 22 base, as it's known, in Jordan, uh, the media as one seemed to pipe up and say, this is a major escalation. And I just really don't think it is. And I kind of feel like people inside the Biden administration understand that it isn't. If I may, this is the first strike from Iran slash Iranian-backed militias that have killed U.S. personnel. But it's that's, not the first that has severely injured them. And I think that right. might be why the media is kind of bloodthirsty for this escalation narrative. I understand that, but... I'm not defending it. I'm just... No, I know. I, I realize you're not. Uh, what I would say is that, just as you're pointing out, in terms of what Iran is actually doing, it's not an escalation at all. They've been mounting these attacks not just since October 7th, during which time, admittedly, they've been happening at a faster pace, but... For instance, if you just look at the headline of the story, it's American military personnel serving abroad were killed by Muslim militants. This is a headline that I've seen in the 1980s, in the 1990s, in the 2000s, in the 2010s. Here we are in the 2020s, and it's the same headline. So in the broadest possible view, how is this actually an escalation? If you have troops stationed all over the world, then perhaps you might expect that some of them are going to come under fire and, in fact, be killed, uh, especially in one of the more volatile regions of the world. But even if we take a smaller view, again, Iran has been mounting these attacks for quite some time. The base in Jordan wasn't there because of anything to do with Israel and Gaza. It was there because of the ongoing monitoring and 
and or combating of ISIS and other militant groups in the region. It, it's in a very remote area of Jordan. It's about as far away as you can get from Gaza and still be in Jordan. And it's near very remote areas of both Syria and Iraq. And so if you look at Iranian intent, there's no escalation whatsoever. The other thing I would point out about this, and there have been numerous news reports that have substantiated this, which is that the air defenses of Tower 22 were momentarily on something like standby because an American drone was returning to base, coming in for a landing. And it's believed that the Iranian-made drone that caused the deaths of the service members sort of chased the American drone in while sort of the shields were down, we might say, to use a Star Trek analogy. Uh, and so were it not for American system failure or perhaps American human error, this would not have been anything at all out of the ordinary. It would have been yet another failed attack by an Iranian-backed militia. And so, again, I don't really understand how this counts as an escalation, apart from, of course, the very unfortunate and regrettable death uh, of a number of American service members. And again, I think people inside the Biden administration understand that very well. And to some degree, they're counting on the idea that something else is going to happen uh, and we're not going to be talking about this as much within a few days. The notion that it's not an escalation is apparent, as you pointed out, if you've been following the balancing act that the United States has been doing militarily over the decades in the Middle East, which is an admittedly volatile region. And even after Iraq, the withdrawal from Iraq, there has been kind of a, a war at simmer level, which is what you're talking about in this decade. Um, I do think the deaths of the service members are what the media are fixated on specifically, and that's just kind of a natural reptilian brain reporter thing. Um, so it's almost like there is a call for a political escalation as opposed to a military one. And the the deliberate pace that the Biden administration is taking here, I think, indicates that they're more aligned with what you're describing, which is, while tragic, this doesn't fundamentally change the, dyna the dynamic. That, that's right. These were the first deaths of American service members in the region since October 7th. But there have been other deaths of American service members prior to October 7th in that same region. And again, those troops were not stationed there because of anything to do with Israel and Gaza, right? So the mission that they were on was one that has already claimed the lives of American service members in the past. We shouldn't actually be surprised that it's still doing so. And so if we're only going to view it through the lens of October 7th, that I believe is just a mischaracterization. Sure. And now I think the reason that I get so exercised about this is that I'm not an expert, right? Neither you or I have any military experience whatsoever. But, and I'm sure that here and there, someone commenting upon this in the media has been able to put this together, but I haven't seen it. And that's not because I don't pay attention. 
And it's just vexing to me that I have to put this together on my own. There needs to be someone else that has you know, more credential than I am to be able to say things like that. Interestingly, however, uh, just the other day, I was reading last weekend's edition of The Economist, which, of course, was published prior to the attack on, tw- on Tower 22. And they were looking at all the various attacks that have been happening in all around the region since uh, October 7th. And one thing that they, you know, they just had a list of them. And on that list was that apparently at some point since October 7th and prior to last weekend, Jordan had launched an attack inside Syria, which I didn't hear about. And there's no Boy, reason. Boy, that's I- below the fold to say the least. Yeah. But, I mean, but, but again, there's no reason we should be upset that we didn't hear about this. There's no American interest involved. It's just one country attacking another, right? Jordan is one of our allies. Syria is nominally anyway uh, a, a client of our Iranian adversary. There's no reason why this should have been front page news in the United States. But if Jordan's attacking the Iranian client of Syria, then suddenly it's a big deal that Iranian clients are attacking Jordan, uh, where we have troops stationed. Again, this should have been classified as something more routine. Uh, and in, this is one of the few cases where actually being behind and reading my uh, magazine subscription uh, sort of pays dividends for my understanding, actually. There was news today from an Iranian-backed militia group in Iraq um, that they will continue to strike United States forces uh, in the region. Earlier in the week, another Iranian-backed militia in Iraq, the more powerful one, which is, I believe, called Kataib Hezbollah. That's correct. Had said they will suspend operations against U.S. forces in the region. So you start to think about Iran and maybe not their puppets, but their clients, right? These militias, and that includes the Houthis, Hezbollah, and in, in other countries. Um, it is part of their affiliate program, we might right. say. Right. And, and Iran, all they want to do is put maximum pressure on the United States and demonstrate solidarity real or perceived with Hamas but they want to stop short of a full-scale war so Correct. it's it's this pinprick offensive and you kill three US troops a big militia says we're going to stand down another militia says we're not going to stand down and oh the houthis they're still attacking shipping in fact they had their closest call their nearest miss of a missile attack on a U.S. warship, a cruise missile, not a ballistic missile, a cruise missile, which, as I understand it, is much much better suited to an attack against a ship, got to the last line of defense of the USS Gravely um, earlier in the week. Uh, Gravely had to use its close-in weapons system for the first time since the U.S. began intercepting Houthi missiles, um, and that succeeded in destroying the missile. But this is another Iran client that is just waiting and looking for opportunities to sow chaos and kill American service members. And so it is not, it is a feature, not a bug, I think, that it is difficult to understand a true strategy of what Iran is trying to achieve other than kind of the aggregate pressure on the United States. I think that's right. Uh, 
we'll have to, you know, we'd have no idea what's going to happen next. Again, and this is another reason why I find it so irksome that, you know, we're jumping to the idea of a major escalation uh, for the Tower 22 attack, right? It's really just sort of par for the course. It's just another one of the thousand cuts that Iran is trying to inflict on the United States. Now, that's very serious. I'm not, you know, Iran, their regime is just awful, and they do mean harm to us and our allies and our interests. And I do not at all intend to minimize that. But I think cooler heads have to prevail. And I'm reasonably confident, actually, that they are doing so inside of the American defense establishment up to a a point. Right. Um, There are some in Congress, in particular in the Senate, who have called for expanding the war. I think uh, Lindsey Graham, a Republican senator, had tweeted earlier in the week that uh, he wanted to attack Iran now, but it's not Lindsey's call. That's right. And that's very easy to say when you're just a senator. Right. I mean, that is kind of red meat, whip up your base, be patriotic, you know, bloodlust kind of uh, tweets. Certainly. Um, But the the funny thing about that is that I think that if Donald Trump were the president today, Lindsey Graham wouldn't be saying anything of the kind. Right. Because Trump is an isolationist and really wouldn't want to be in any sort of war whatsoever. Uh, Now, I could be wrong about that. Right. Trump is uh, uh, can be unpredictable at times. So it's possible that he would have the entirely opposite reaction. Just if you're keeping score, I read a published report earlier this week or actually heard on the intelligence podcast from The Economist that there have been eight, a minimum of eight U.S. strikes against Iranian-backed militia targets and, in fact, Iranian Revolutionary Guard targets in Jordan and Syria. And there have been a separate minimum of nine U.S. strikes against the Houthis in Yemen. So the political narrative that is attempting to congeal opposite Joe Biden in the United States, that he's sitting pat and doing nothing, is patently false. But you can already uh, discern that that is the narrative they're trying to drive right now. Well, I think political so, opponents. To, to be fair, I think some of his, his, his opponents would say it's simply insufficient. Right? Sure. Not that, that Biden has done nothing. It's just that he hasn't done enough. We'll have to see what the response ends up being. But again, by the time it actually happens, it's very possible that the entire dialogue will have moved on to something else. There's other things that have been happening you know, in terms of the actual conflict in Gaza, uh, there's a greater push for a ceasefire. Uh, there's the whole controversy about uh, the United Nations Relief Agency working in Gaza and uh, Israeli accusations that some of their uh, members have been in, were actually involved in the October 7th attacks. And we think that this will, I mean, the United States has already said they're suspending funding for that UN agency. And this could be very dire for the circumstances of people in Gaza. We'll have to see how that shakes out. I hope that funding can be restored because without it, it's just going to be an even worse nightmare for the people of Gaza. And I don't know why Israel only came out with these accusations right now. I'd just as soon not speculate. All right, let's pivot to the economic side of our foreign affairs and economics spectrum. U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics 
issuing a report today that non-farm payroll employment rose by 353,000 jobs in January. The unemployment rate holding firm at 3.7%, job gains occurring in professional and business services, healthcare, retail trade, social assistance. There was some decline in mining, quarrying, and oil and gas extraction. Now, Mel, also, why, and John, why is that not a major problem? Because it's a minor problem. Oh, very good, Sam. You're welcome. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, you've stumped me. Thank God it's a joke. Yeah. Um, also, average hourly earnings climbed 4.5% from this January to last January. So yes. that's another data point that indicates wage gains are outpacing inflation. Yes. Um, this comes after our uh, chief deadhead, Fed Chairman Powell, spoke earlier in the week. Um, and he talked about rate cuts maybe happening in the future, although not for the next meeting, likely uh, March 19th and 20th, but certainly no rate hikes. I guess, was he cautiously optimistic? He said he thought the labor market was back to near normal. He said yes. job openings are not quite to back where they were, but might take a couple of years to get all the way back. And he said, that's okay. I guess it's okay as long as you're not unemployed. But um, did, are we reading the tea leaves right? The rate cuts I, won't start until at least May? Well, if we are reading them right, then we're ahead of seemingly the investment community, which just baffles me. But when after Powell had finished speaking and said that there that he really didn't think that they were going to cut rates at their next meeting, mind you, this is before the jobs report came out. Uh, yeah, he spoke on Wednesday. The jobs report is today, Friday. That's right. Exactly. And uh, markets uh, fell sharply on that news, seeming to indicate that investors somehow expected that the Fed was going to begin cutting rates very soon. Uh, and even though Powell had never said anything of the kind, even last, you know, in their last meeting last year, he said that there would probably be some rate cuts this year. Uh, but investors, for some reason, seemed to think that he was going to start doing it right away. Uh, and so uh, they were very disappointed, had a, a bit of a sell-off, uh, less than 1%. Uh, but And it was all made up the following day, that is Thursday, yesterday. Uh, but then uh, there was some downward movement again today uh, because of the jobs report, right? Because with the economy adding that many jobs, the the Fed shouldn't feel like they're in any hurry at all to cut interest rates. Uh, and once again, uh, in last week's issue of The Economist, their Buttonwood columnist said that investors seem to be making the same mistake that they made last year of not believing the actual things that Chairman Powell says about monetary policy. And I think uh, uh, they're, of course, more professional about this than I am. But I thought, look, these people are just junkies, right? They're addicted to low interest rates and they can't, they find it difficult to function without them. And uh, while we're on that subject, uh, today's job report, 355,000 jobs, right? Econ you know, economists were expecting something like just over 100,000. So this jobs report just blew their expectations out of the water. Similar and to the GDP report for the fourth quarter. Exactly. And so 
at a certain point, I'm, and again, this is just my layman's opinion, but I have to think or that one of the reasons economists are so enamored of the neoliberal consensus is because it means less math for them to do, right? If there are fewer distortions being put into the economy by things like industrial policy. It's harder uh, to read, right? Yeah, there, there's just additional calculations that uh, that they have to make that they, they're not used to having to make for a few decades now. Uh, and uh, now, I'm sure there's some reason why I'm wrong about that. But then again, I might not be, right? Uh, we'll have to see how this works out. But again, th this is all very good news for the economy, so we should be happy about that. There was another um, data point in this jobs report. I clicked through to the Bureau of... Uh, Labor Statistics actual report, which, you know, looks like it. The, wow, just good the, for you. I mean, the font is from, you know, 1940, and it's it's the most visually, you know, uh, it's the least visually arresting published thing you'll see on the internet today. It's refreshing in a way. It is. It's great. It's like it came off the teletype in 1965. But, um, you know, it's two different uh, surveys that they blend into one. There's the household one and another one that's a little bit specific to sectors of the economy. That's right. But the big data point that I think just summed up how wrong or at least how overly dire the uh, the chattering classes were about the economy in 2023, payroll employment increased by an average of 255,000 jobs a month in calendar 2023. That is not only not a recession, that's a pretty robust economy yes that well that is a a strong recovery sure i think we should point out right right not, we are sure okay fair enough recovery yeah we're coming back from you know a rather dire economic circumstance but an oh, average of over two hundred fifty thousand jobs a month oh uh, yeah uh, that that is remarkable and one of the things that i i jumped out at me from today's report was that out of that three hundred fifty five thousand fully 100,000 and more of those jobs were in healthcare and social assistance, which of course makes perfect sense, right? We've been hearing for months that hospitals and other medical facilities are understaffed and they're, they're the staff that they do have are very unhappy about this because they're drastically overworked. And so if, and of course, we also know that uh, healthcare spending is enormously high. The fifth of the high. GDP, yeah. It, yeah, it's, and so- if uh, we're still spending tons of money on healthcare uh, and that money is actually finally going to hiring lots of people, again, that's a good thing uh, uh, because we need to have better healthcare in this country and you can't have it if you're understaffed. So Chairman Powell said that the rate cuts would not begin until at least May. The next meeting is uh, mid-March. And he said that's because they need to see more evidence that inflation is still mellow. That's right. right, because the, just recently, inflation has been drifting down near their target of 2%, but that doesn't mean that it's over, right? Chairman Powell, as far as I know, did not say anything about the recent supply chain problems in the Red Sea, uh, but this is certainly factoring into their calculations. And so uh, you don't just de de declare victory and go home to uh, sort of mix the metaphor, right? He's got to be sure that this is going well. And again, the jobs report hadn't come out yet. 
And so uh, this is why investors were disapp additionally disappointed today was because it's just another reason for him not to feel like he has to cut interest rates anytime soon. But Sam, it's not just supply chain issues in the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. No, no, no. no. We've got a developing supply chain story and another big canal problem in this hemisphere, which you alerted me to. There was good reporting on the PBS NewsHour earlier this week. Uh, the Panama Canal, where 5% of the world's maritime trade and 40% of U.S. container traffic travels through, is not operating at capacity because of a drought. And Panama is now just waiting for a rainy season. They hope comes through nice and wet in late spring. Correct. I mean, this is wild. They're down like... What are they only doing 24 ships a day or something? Yes, that they're down to about 70% of normal capacity. And this is the first time this has happened in the entire history of the Panama Canal. Which is uh, 120 years old, give or take? Something like that, yes. And uh, I would encourage uh, people who tune in to regularly to working for Crusoe to, to search out on YouTube this report on the news hour. The other I night. will include it in the show notes. Sorry to interrupt you, Sam. No, that's a great... That it was a very good did. interview with the Panama Canal's Authority Deputy Administrator, Ilya Espino de Marota. I thought she yes. was very uh, anti-alarmist, but also clear-eyed about what was going on. That's true. But of course, she works for the Canal Authority. So sure. she's she's not going to stand there and say, oh, we're screwed. Right. I mean, <laughs> Turn your uh, boats around. Yeah. You know, I mean, she was very, you know, tried her best to be reassuring to people. Uh, and for instance, when she was talking about how uh, they were expecting a better rainy season this year than they've gotten in recent years. She mentioned, I believe twice, that she was basing that assumption on data that uh, the authority gets from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency. I did hear that. Here in the United States. That's oh, I right. know you did because yeah. she made sure you did, yeah. right? Uh, but uh, the the what I would say about that is, okay, fine. Maybe you're not going to have a, a, maybe the drought won't continue this year. But we all know that this is, and and uh, Ms. Dimarota conceded that this is just part of climate change. And, you know, she said, well, we're not the only ones having this problem. The Mississippi and the Rhine and other major waterways are having uh, related issues from climate change as well. Now, that doesn't help her, uh, but uh, the point is that we could easily foresee Panama having drought conditions again in the near future if if climate change is as big a problem as we think it is. And so, uh, as a matter of fact, Mexico has been building a railroad across the southern part of their country just because of this, right? Because these this drought in Panama isn't just last year, right? And it's not just last year and the year before. It's it's something that's been happening for a while. And again, climate change isn't going to get any better anytime soon. So uh, it Mexico feels it's probably in their interest to have a quick way uh, by rail for freight to travel. Now, They've just completed the railroad, I think, for passengers, and they're going to open up the freight lane very soon. This is not an especially compelling proposition for shippers because you have to unload the ship onto the uh, unload the containers from the ship onto the rail cars and then 
have the rail cars go across Mexico. And then it has to be another ship on the other side to pick them up. So it's twice as twice the number of ships that you would normally use, right? Obviously, it has to be another ship because if it didn't have to be, there would be no point in using the railroad, right? You also, there's on. no huge deep water ports on the east and west coast of the extreme southern tip of Mexico. Well, but ports can be built, right? Sure, I mean, but not uh, overnight. No, not overnight. Uh, and so that's something that's uh, have to, going to have to be addressed at some point. Uh, the other thing about that that I would say is that, for instance, we talked last week about how the main port in South Africa and Durban uh, is just running over capacity. It's overwhelmed. They can't cope with all the traffic they're getting. Again, the Red Sea situation might not clear up all that quickly. We hope it does, uh, but shippers might want to make long-term plans. And so, for instance, this, the, the coast of South Africa is very long, right? They could possibly put up another another port. And as we know, South Africa is a longtime member of the BRICS grouping headed by China, who, as it happens, just opened up a mega port in Peru. And that's not the, the only port that they have opened abroad in recent years. They've been trying to help with transit infrastructure in many different parts of the world for about 10 years now as part of their what they call their Belt and Road Initiative. And so even though China's economy isn't doing all that well right now, uh, they might think that it might be worth their time to invest in helping South Africa build more port facilities. For example, there's a city on the southern coast of South Africa that's called Port Elizabeth. Hmm. And so... Something tells me that that might not be a bad place to go. But if it's, even if it's not there, it could be someplace else. And if China can't afford it, there's a promising rookie member of the BRICS grouping, which is the United Arab Emirates, which is home to a one of the largest port construction firms in the world. They're called Dubai Ports World, which in today is, I find, Clever a very, title. Yeah, it's a very refreshing name, though, right? Because it's exactly what they do. They're based in Dubai. They build ports all over the world. So that's, you know, uh, and I'm sure they, you know, want to prove their, wor their worth to the grouping they've just joined. They might want to help out South Africa. So there's ways that these things can be addressed. It takes time, as you say, right? Uh, but refreshingly, just this past week, container shipping rates actually fell hmm. slightly. So uh, this is after several, you know, about a month of them rising very dramatically. So it seems as though the additional capacity involved uh, in the shipping industry today has been at least in part brought to bear to address the problem that was happening in the Red Sea without, I would add, seemingly a great deal of impact inflationary impact that is on consumer prices which we should have expected and i think we did expect because supply chains let's face it they're already quite long and if shipping costs really had that big an impact on consumer prices supply chains never would have gotten that long to begin with it just would have been too expensive yes that's right and so obviously or, or too unpredictable exactly and so uh it, you know, now I'm not saying that the impact of these uh, developments on shipping costs is at an end, but it does seem to 
be moderating right now. And I kind of feel like it probably still will for some time to come. Global commercial shipping is also something that is a known economic concept. It's centuries old. Yes. So there is some kind of institutional awareness of fluctuation, no matter how dramatic they might seem to us in real time. That's right. I mean, again, uh, as we recall from the incident of the Evergrande uh, uh, back in 2021, uh, container rates were averaging at that point about $22,000, right? right. Now, at the Way moment, higher than they ever spiked yeah, this episode. At, at, and at right now, they're topping out at about $3,300. So they were five times higher then than they are now. So that's, you know, uh, and that just is more a function of how bad supply chains had gotten during the during during the pandemic uh they were just so snarled up and they're even before the incidents in the red sea started to ramp up they just weren't anywhere near there and so uh i don't think we should expect that they're going to have an enormous impact going forward and we should hope right. not i just because you and i talk about this a lot the the problems that face international commercial shipping are so analog. They're so not scalable. They're not an app. They're not an email, right? These are, they're very kind of physical, three-dimensional, old school challenges. So the, uh, just to go back to what the Panama Canal usually does, I would have had no idea what the numbers were if uh, Miss uh, Espino de Marota hadn't gone on the news hour, right? The, uh, the Panama Canal usually sends 38 ships through. They're down to 24. I mean, if, you, if you'd asked me at a pub trivia, how many ships go through the Panama Canal a day, I would have had no idea. So it's 38, which is a, a number you can conceive of. And yeah, it's down, to, and it seems down like to 24. A fast clip, by the way. I mean, that's, you yeah. know, more than, that's one and a half every hour. That's, you know, that's pretty fast. And you need a 44-foot draft for these giant, Boats. Now, a draft is the amount of boat that goes below the waterline. Yes. Uh, you need more depth than your draft. Otherwise, you run aground. Yes. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not in the Navy, but I, I, I have had a few sailing lessons. So, again, how, how deep do, do things need to be for those giant cargo container ships that maybe we've seen on the news or even in person? Well, 44 feet. Yes. So, you know about halfway from home plate to first base. That's not an insignificant distance. That's right. And if and again, you've got to have that clearance, right? If you don't yeah. have it, then things are going to be very bad. And again, you're putting 38 of those ships through, or now only 24, but you're still putting one through every hour. That's a lot. And there is a, a fascinating time-lapse um, video on YouTube of a container ship going through the various locks in the Panama Canal. And so, you know, you've got to I don't recall which C is higher than the other, but you have to, I believe, I don't know, but let's just say, you know, the Pacific and the Atlantic are not at the same level. So you have to move these ships up or down depending on the direction they're going. And that's why the drought has right? an impact because they need freshwater supplies in order to make sure that the, the levels and all the various lock stages are at the, you know, you can't just rely on the tides, right? Because otherwise, you know, you'd, you'd have to wait at some point. You don't want and to have to do that. And anybody who's ever gotten in a bath can understand this concept. Yes. Right. It's not some Byzantine, hard to grasp, you know, theory. 
It's it's just buoyancy. Well, they've been doing it for more than a hundred years. Who is it? Who is it? Euripides, the light bulb. Archim- I think it was Archimedes. Archimedes That's right. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Anyway. Euripides was a dramatist. John. Yeah. Whatever. The same difference. <laughs> it's all uh, Greek Archimedes. to you. Yeah. No. It's a- there it is. Yeah. <laughs> Next week, what were you sent me? El Salvador and, and Pakistan. Pakistan. Election Orama. Yes. Electorama in, in El Salvador and Pakistan. So the El Salvador will be on Sunday and Pakistan will be next Thursday. Hopefully we'll have results from both by uh, this time next week. All right. Email us, Media at gmail.com, Media at gmail.com. I'm still laughing about it's all Greek to me, Sam. Well, come on. It wasn't that funny. <laughs> yeah, but it was It's right there. Um He is Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. Everybody have yourselves a fantastic weekend, and we will see you next Friday. Thanks, folks.